Um, just uh, kind of as a side note, as I reflect uh, on Mother's Day and as I reflect on time spent with my own mom, I know that for me, uh, there are several lessons um, that I have learned over the years or things that I've picked up from her, possibly even traits that um, I kind of resemble or, or kind of display now that are really are a result of um, my mother and, and my relationship with her. I don't know about you, probably most of us in this room can say that there's something, um, something that you display, a trait or a personality or something, maybe it's just one thing, maybe it's 10 things, or maybe you, you are just a, a, a mere copy of your mother, um, but there are certain things that, that I think even in my own life as I reflect on this day, things that I've learned, things that I display as a result of, of my mom and, and her relationship with me. Um, I, I feel like I'm a pretty calm uh, individual. Um, that's kind of how my mom is. Um, I've grown up uh, in a pastor's home. My mom has always been kind of more, um, more behind the scenes and, and, and kind of been much more calm and collective. Um, that's not to say my dad's the opposite of that. I'm just telling you about my mom this morning. So um, she's kind of got that easygoing uh, demeanor. Um, she is a little bit picky when it comes to food, and I think I've picked up that trait as well. Um, thanks, Mom. Uh, that, that goes to her. Um, but she also has a, a servant's heart. Um, and I can, I can recall several times, and one of the things that she does um, every single Sunday in Muncie and, and has done it for years, has done it in Muncie, did it in Winchester when we were there, in Morocco, Indiana when we were there. She's always uh, served with the kids, um, the young ones, the older ones. She just She's always had a servant's heart, willing to serve wherever was needed. So there's a lot of things that I've learned from my mom, a lot of character traits that I've picked up on and things that I display that I think are a result uh, of my relationship with her. I'm certain there are certain lessons or traits that you've picked up, things that you've learned from maybe your mother, your grandmother, people that are very special to you in your life. On this special day, I want to take just a few minutes this morning to actually examine uh, the life of a very unassuming individual in Scripture, a very significant woman, a woman that we really don't talk about a lot uh, when we are uh, walking through the pages of Scripture, partly because her name only really appears, I believe, two times. Uh, her actual name only appears two times in all of Scripture, but she's a very important, significant woman that really played a very vital role uh, in the salvation of Israel, and it's a lady by the name of Jochebed. Um, Jochebed, let me just tell you, if you don't know who Jochebed is, uh, let, me, let me tell you this morning. Jochebed was actually a Levite woman. Um, we talked a little bit about the Levites last week. They were the priestly tribe. If you remember, again, Jacob had 12 sons. One of the sons, uh, his name was Levi. And so those that came from uh, the tribe or the family of Levi were considered Levites. And Jochebed was one of those. Levi, she was a Levite woman. She was of the priestly tribe. She was the wife of a guy by the name of Amram. Um, if you ever need names for children, just go to the, just go to the scriptures. Let me tell you, there's some incredible names uh, to choose from. I'm not sure Amram would fall at the top of the list for anybody, or Jochebed for that matter. Um, but, but there are some excellent names uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, but she was a Levite woman, the wife of Amram. Uh, she was the mother, these are names you might know, mother of Aaron. Aaron was a priest. 
the mother of Moses, who really, that's where we're going to focus our attention this morning, and also the mother of Miriam. Aaron, Moses, and Miriam, they were brothers and sisters. We read in Numbers 26, here's one of the places we see this name actually appear. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt, and she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their sister. Now, she's only mentioned by name in two locations. We see one of those here in Numbers 26, and we see the other in a genealogical record in Numbers chapter 6, verse 20. And look at what it says. It says, Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years old. Okay, so Jochebed, her name only shows up in two places in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, Numbers chapter 26. But we know a little bit more about her from other records, and we're going to look at that here in just a few moments. Though she only appears by name on a few occasions, her God, and I want you to hear this this morning, her godly discernment, her confident trust in her sovereign God, in her spiritual investment in the life of her children offers us, the church, offers us as parents, and offers us as individuals what I believe to be several lessons that we need to take closely to heart. If you have your Bibles with you, look at Exodus, turn to Exodus chapter 2. It'll also be up here on the screen, Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. Uh, This is really where we are first introduced to Jochebed and the role that she will play in the people of God. Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1, it says, About this time a man and woman from the tribe of Levi got married. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months, but when she could no longer hide him, She got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River, and the baby's sister then stood at a distance, watching to see what would happen to him. Soon, Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe in the river, and her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children, she said. Then the baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She asked, yes, do, the princess replied. So the girl went and called the baby's mother. Verse 9, take this baby and nurse him for me, the princess told the baby's mother, and I will pay you for your help. So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. We're going to kind of unpack that text this morning because there's some great lessons, um, great lessons not just for parents, but I think there are some great lessons for us as a church and as individuals that I want us to, to really capture this morning as we work through uh, this story in Exodus chapter 2. Let me just jump right in with the very first lesson, and it's this. We must learn to recognize the God-given potential of our children. Now, when I'm talking to us this morning, I may be talking about your immediate children, but as a congregation and as a church, I think we also have a responsibility 
to not only just recognize the God-given potential in our own children's life, but in the children that are in here worshiping with us on Sunday morning, the children that we, that we pass every single Sunday morning that are running, uh, running through the hallways, even my son who's laying over here on the floor um, during the prayer time. I, I would like to think that he was praying. I'm not sure that's what he was doing. Um, but, but even then, we, we have a responsibility, not just as parents, But as godly individuals, we have a task, we have a responsibility to make certain that we are recognizing the God-given potential in the children that God has placed within our sphere of influence. And let me unpack that just a little bit. Look at Exodus again, chapter 2. Look at the first two verses. About this time, a man and a woman from the tribe of Levi, they got married. The woman became pregnant, gave birth to a son. And listen to this. She saw that he was a special baby, and she kept him hidden for three months. Let me, let me just kind of explain what's happening here. Jochebed's godly discernment allowed her to see godly potential in the life of her son, Moses. What's interesting in the text is there is no specific revelation given to Jochebed. There's no, at least in the scriptures, we're not told that Jochebed received a, a vision from an angel or a vision from the Lord saying to her, Jochebed, Moses will be a special baby. We don't get that in scripture. I, I like to think that's how God's voice was um, in scripture. But, but we don't see any special revelation given uh, uh, to Jochebed specifically regarding the unique nature of her son, but she had a godly discernment, which says to me that, that Jochebed had a very unique relationship with God, that she was able to discern wisely when her child was born, that there is something unique, something special about this boy that God has given to me. She saw that he was special, but she was not given any other additional details. We actually read a little bit more um, in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7. It says, at that time, Moses was born. And listen, he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. So even, even Luke, the writer of Acts, will pick up on the fact that this child was significant, was valuable, and that Jochebed, the mother of Moses, recognized the uniqueness of her son, Moses. What's very interesting about his name, uh, his name Moses actually means to draw out. Now we know that Moses was placed in a basket and and he was drawn out of the water by, by the princess, by Pharaoh's daughter. And so his name even had a little bit of a prophetic uh, implication to it because we also know later on as Moses, when, he, when he's 80 years old, he will return to Egypt. And what is he going to do? He's going to draw out the people of God out of slavery, out of bondage. And so even in his name, Moses, um, it had immediate implications in that he was drawing, he was drawn out of the water. But 80 years down the road, He was going to be very significant in drawing the people of God out of Egyptian bondage, out of slavery, and he would bring them into the wilderness where they would uh, move toward the land of promise. Now, how are we as individuals, as families, and as a church, how are we to have, because I think Jacob had, had a very unique godly discernment, and I pray and I hope that all of us in this room desire to have that kind of discernment uh, with our children. I want to be able to, to, to recognize and see the God-given potential in, in my child's life or in the life of your children as they're here and as they're worshiping with us on Sunday morning. So how are we to have that kind of discernment? There's a few things I want to share with you this morning. Number one, In order to have that kind of discernment, we must be in tune with the voice and the heart of God. 
In order to be able to discern, like Jochebed, the uniqueness of the son that was given to her again, there's no special revelation, there's no announcement, there's no heavens opening up in front of her saying, this child will be special, but instead she had a discerning spirit about her. And I believe it's because she had a very unique and uh, relationship with God. She was in tune with the heart of God. She was in tune with the the voice and the spirit of God. And I think one of the ways that we have that godly discerning spirit is we have to be in tune with God's voice and God's heart. I think very simply the way that we we do that is we have to spend time in God's presence. We spend time in his presence through the word. We get to know him as we open up the pages of scripture. Uh, if, if If you're here wondering today, well, how am I to really know the heart of God? How do I know what makes God's heart beat? How do I know what makes God, um, what, 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 is he, what does he long for? What does he hope for? We have to open up the pages of Scripture because inside these pages of Scripture, we are introduced to a faithful God and we will know his heart as we pour ourselves into his word. We also do that by just spending time in his presence, praying to him, but also listening to his voice. I've said this before, one of, the, one of my biggest challenges, especially when I'm praying, I have no problem talking to God, but I really struggle listening to God. I really struggle slowing down and listening to his voice. I'm, I'm really of the cloth. I, I want to talk to him, and then I want to move on and do something else. And sometimes I think God is saying, no, you need to slow down. I have something to say to you, and I want you to hear my voice. So we have to be in tune with his voice and with his heart. Secondly, we have to embrace the biblical claim that all of human life is created by God and for God. When we embrace that claim that all of human life is created by him and for him, then guess what? We will begin to recognize that not just Moses, but every child that is born has incredible God-given potential, and we are to recognize that in them. Number three, and this is one of the things, especially parents, that you can do is we need to be praying and speaking blessing over our children. Listen to this. If, If we are created by God and we're created for him, then all of human beings or all of humanity has a God-given purpose. Therefore, I think as parents and as a church family, I'm talking to all of us in this room as parents and as a church family, we should be praying and speaking blessing over our children, that they would walk faithfully, honorably, with integrity in the God-given calling that is upon their life. And there's so many different ways that we can do that. And, and one of the things that you can do, maybe you're one that, that likes to actually write out the blessing over your children or over your family. One of the things that you can do very practically speaking is to pin that blessing, that prayer over them, hang it over your kid's bed, and every single night pray, pray that blessing over your children. You can choose a, a life verse for your child or pray often that blessing over them. And number four, I think we have to be available. We have to be available to pour ourselves into their lives. I'm not just talking to parents. I'm talking to us as a congregation. How do we make ourselves available 
to pour into the lives of the children that God has placed within our sphere of influence. We, we do that by serving. We do that by mentoring. We do that by encouraging. We do that by counseling. One of the great things that you can do, do uh, as a congregation, not just with our own children, but as the kids before service are running through here, one of the things you can do is encourage them, lift them up, speak uh, words of comfort and encouragement over them. Help them to recognize that they are special and unique because they have been created in the image in likeness of God. We must learn to recognize the God-given potential of our children. Number two, we learn from the life of Jochebed that we must learn to guard our children from Satan's destructive activity. Look at chapter two, look at verses three and four. It says, but when she could no longer hide him, she got a basket made of papyrus reeds and waterproofed it with tar and pitch. She put the baby in the basket and laid it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile River. The baby's sister then stood at a distance watching to see what would happen to him. Now, let me unpack this for you. First of all, why did the parents have to go to such great lengths uh, in the first place to protect Moses? Why was it even necessary for Moses to be placed in a basket? Uh, I think if you, if you don't read chapter 1 and you just jump in with Exodus chapter 2, you're going to miss what's taking place. You're going to miss the, the unfolding of the story here. So why did the parents have to go to such great lengths in the first place to, re, to protect their son Moses? Let me just kind of uh, give you the, the, the context of the story. The new pharaoh of Egypt, not the one that was alive during the time of Joseph, there was a new pharaoh that feared the multiplication of the Hebrew people and its ramifications for Egypt. So here's, here's what's happening. God's people are in Egypt. They came when uh, Joseph, going all the way back to Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery. They stayed in Egypt. They stayed too long in Egypt. And, and there was a pharaoh that actually had a pretty good relationship with Joseph. He liked Joseph. He liked uh, the people of God, but that pharaoh died. So there was a new king, a new pharaoh that was starting to, to rule and reign in Egypt during the time. And so what occurred, what happened uh, in this particular season uh, is that there's this new pharaoh that all of a sudden is getting a little bit worried. Why? Because this group of people that they were small when they came to Egypt, there was only about 70 of them. And when they came to Egypt, they were very small. They, they, they weren't really a threat at all to Egypt. But what happened over time um, is they started growing. They started multiplying. They started having children, and their children had children. And all of a sudden, you have this little pact of 70 people that now has grown to such a, an enormous amount of people that this Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he's worried, he's concerned that they're going to get so big that they're going to realize, hey, wait a second. We don't have to be slaves to these people any longer. We, 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 can, we can take them. We can join with other armies. And so there was this fear that they would eventually come against them. Look in Exodus chapter 1. Look at verses 8 through 10. Eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must take a, make a plan to, to keep them from growing even more. If we don't and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. To ease his fears then, this is what the king did. He devised all kinds of plans. He, he did whatever he could do to try to wipe out this group of, of people to, to get rid of them to make certain that they could no longer multiply. And he tried plan upon plan upon plan. You read about it in Exodus chapter 1 um, and, and in chapter 2. He tried every plan that he could think of to try to wipe out this group of people. 
He started off by instituting forced labor and, and made them slaves with the hope that eventually he would wear them out and that they would no longer multiply at such rapid rates. That failed. Instead, he, it says in Scripture that they continued to multiply. So what did he do? He increased the oppression. He increased the demands. He made it harder for them to, to operate as, as laborers and as, and, and, and as workers, but that too failed. And so then he decreed that the Hebrew midwives should kill every male child that was being birthed. So what he said, he said to the, the Hebrew midwives, every time that there is a, a male child being born, the Pharaoh said, I want you to kill those baby boys because eventually if there's no boys, there's no, there's no possibility for multiplication. So his hope is to get rid of this group of people eventually. That too failed because the Hebrew midwives did just the opposite. They, they said, those, those Hebrew, if you, I'm just telling you what it says in the text, all right? In, in chapter one of Exodus, it says those Hebrew women, they're just so quick. By the time we get there, the baby's already born. So they have no chance to kill off. Um, and God honored those Hebrew midwives and blessed them. So finally, Pharaoh gave the instructions to throw every male child into the Nile River with the hope of those children drowning. There was, this, there was this constant attempt to try to stamp out, to stomp out the people of God. That's what Satan was trying to do. This was his activity, trying to get rid of the people of God altogether. But every single time, instead of getting rid of this group of people, they continued to multiply. God was blessing them and honoring them. Every attempt to diminish and wipe out the Hebrew race actually did just the opposite. They continued to see incredible growth. How many are thankful for a God? They were faithful. They were, they were honorable. They lived lives of integrity. And because of that, God honored them. The Israelites, it says in Exodus 1 verse 20, says the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. Nothing that the enemy tried to do could wipe out, could get rid of the people of God that God was working through. Now, I know that's the text that we see, but we also know that Satan is always at work trying to destroy that which God has created and or initiated. John chapter 10 verse 10 says, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. This has always been the primary objective of the enemy from the beginning. We saw this in the Garden of Eden. He tried to tried to persuade Eve, and he did, tried to get rid of, of what God had created in the garden. We see that in Genesis. We see that in all of Scripture. This remains the objective of the enemy today. I, I could spend all kinds of time talking about ways the enemy is trying to destroy the very work and plan of God, the killing of the preborn in their mother's womb, the promotion of godless values through media and other messages, uh, the liberal, progressive, and unfortunately, even in evangelical places, um, they are stealing our children through the destruction of absolute truth and the rejection of ultimate accountability to God. Listen to what one writer says. Mark Sayers says this. He describes really the progressive vision of the world as the kingdom without the king. We want all of God's blessings without submitting to his loving rule and reign. We want progress without his presence. We want justice without his justification. We want the horizontal implications of the gospel for society without the vertical reconciliation of sinners with God. We want society to conform to our standard of moral purity without God's standard of personal 
holiness. He's describing this whole move of progressive Christianity. And it's all about wanting progress, but wanting it, as he says, wanting progress without God's presence or, or wanting um, justice without his, God's justification. Or even this, and I think we see this uh, appear most often, we want to see horizontal implications of the gospel, but we ignore altogether our responsibility as followers of Christ to have a vertical relationship with God. And so we see that in our culture today, Satan, in whatever possibility, even under the umbrella of Christianity, Satan is trying to destroy our children, trying to steal away their minds and their hearts by trying to paint a picture of what Christianity is when it really does not reflect the heart of God. And so he is always at work trying to destroy that which God has created. He's allowing our lives to be full sometimes of several good and harmless things. And, and there are many things that can consume our lives that are not bad. But the more and more that we allow to consume our time and our attention, usually what happens is we spend less and less time with God. Satan loves it when we crowd our lives, our family time, with things that are good. But as a result, we end up crowding out the very best thing. And that is time as a family or time as followers of Christ, spending time in his presence. question we have to ask, not only as individuals, but as families, is God our priority? See the priority in our family's life. How are we to guard our children? Guarding our children from Satan's destructive activity may be a difficult task, but it's not an impossible task, and it's certainly a necessary task. I'm just going to give these to you quickly, very, very practical things to consider. First of all, as followers of Jesus Christ, and hopefully that captures everybody in this room, I want you first of all to know that we have the same spirit inside of us that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So the question we're asking, how do we guard? How can we guard our children from the destructive activity of the enemy? Well, first of all, as followers of Christ, you and I, we have the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That spirit lives inside of us. And what is, the, what is the purpose? What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Number one, to convict us when we're missing the mark. Number two, to lead us into all truth instead of into worldly ways. Purpose of the Holy Spirit is to help us in our weakness, to empower us and equip us to stand against the values of a godless culture and to confront us in times of hardship and confusion. Now I speak to us, not just as followers of Christ, but as a church. God expects us, the body of Christ, to equip and encourage one another and family units to faithfully pursue Jesus Christ. As a church, as a congregation, we need to be praying for our children, our grandchildren, our families. We need to pray that God would protect the home. We need to, pro- we need to provide helpful and practical resources for parents and grandparents and guardians to point their children to Christ. The reality is, yes, uh, uh, when they are with their, their teachers on Sunday morning, they're, they're, they're teaching them, they're pointing them to Christ, but the reality is you're only here for an hour and a half once a week. And so as parents or as a 
congregation or as guardians, we have a responsibility to pour into the heart of our children and to teach them about Christ. We need to encourage and build up every child on Sunday morning when they run through the halls or, or they talk about their week. As a congregation, we have a responsibility to encourage them and to pour into them. We need to model godly worship for our children. That's one of the reasons why I love, uh, I love having our children in here during the worship time. Um, yes, I, as I said earlier, uh, my son might be on the floor, um, but, but I want him to see. I want to model what godly worship looks like for him, and I think it's a great opportunity for our children to see us engaged in worship. And so it's one of the reasons why I love having our children a part of the worship time, a part of the prayer time, because that, that, that's something that they get to see. And as they get older, as they get older, they're going to remember the times that they spent in here worshiping together uh, with, with their family. And so I love and enjoy this time. We need to serve our children, pray for our volunteers, offer encouragement to those who are pointing our children to Jesus. I'm so grateful for those that, that, that serve and, and that spend time with our children on Sundays um, or, or at other times and care for them because that is a very vital and necessary role as they point our children to Christ. And then as parents and grandparents, Christ must be at the center of our home. We can't afford to get it wrong here. We have been tasked with the responsibility of training our children up in the way of Christ. Likely, there's no more important job or task in front of you than pointing your kids to Jesus. And I know right now, specifically, I am talking to parents or grandparents or whoever may be raising children. There is no more important task. Your job might be important. I hope it is. But there's no more important job that God has given you than to faithfully steward and to point your kids to Christ. We cannot get it wrong. Christ must be at the center of our home. So what are we doing to make this happen? And I know we don't always get it right. I know we miss the mark. Uh, there have been times that I've started something maybe with our kids or with our family and then life gets in the way. I understand that, but that's never an excuse to say, well, you know, we'll wait until January 1 and we'll start all over again. That's not how it works. We need to make certain that we are faithful, that we are consistent. I would encourage you as families, uh, parents and grandparents, I would discuss this with your family, discuss it with your kids, discuss it with your spouse. What can we do to make certain that Christ is at the center of our home and make that a matter of priority. And if you need suggestions, if you need uh, help on that, please don't be afraid to ask. Um, we'd love to be able to point you in the right direction. Finally, number three, not finally, but number three, and then number four will be finally. I'm almost done. We must learn to entrust our children to God's sovereign care. Look at what Jacobah did, Exodus 2. Soon Pharaoh's daughters came down to bathe in the river. Her attendants walked along the riverbank. When the princess saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it for her. When the princess opened it, she saw the baby. The little boy was crying. She felt sorry for him. This must be one of the Hebrew children. Jacobah, without hesitation, we see she released the child into God's sovereign care. She knew that if she held on to the baby for too long, the baby was going to be killed. Um, and, and she recognized that she could not allow that to happen. So what did she do? She put the baby in a basket. She, she protected the basket, sent it down the Nile River, sent Miriam to kind of guard and watch. There's a few interesting things to note in this text, in these few verses. First of all, the child was placed in a basket. 
Uh, literally, the, the word that's used for basket speaks of an ark. How appropriate for the day that we have today. I should have talked about Noah's ark. That would have been very appropriate this morning, but, but I am a little bit. Uh, the child was placed in a basket. The word that is used there speaks of an ark. The only other time that we see that word really show up is with Noah uh, when the flood comes. Remember, the flood is, is God's judgment upon the people. And so God, uh, excuse me, um, Noah and his family, they step into the ark to be protected uh, from the waters, to be protected from the judgment. We see this child. What's very interesting is the basket then was pitched with tar to guard the child against the waters of the Nile. And the Nile, the Nile River was actually demanded to serve as the destroying, destroying force. But what's very interesting is the Nile River for Moses became the saving force or the saving grace for this child. He was rescued and then he was raised. Philip Ryken said this, God was at, the work, was at work in the baby's basket. At one moment in history, God's entire plan for triumph, triumphing over evil was riding down the Nile River in a little basket. While it was common for a baby to put in such a cradle, it was unusual, not altogether safe to turn the basket into a boat. His mother made it safe as she could, uh, but ultimately it was God who protected the precious cargo of redemption. However frightening and experiencing it was for Moses, who was crying when they found him, he was never safer than he was in that basket. God was right there working out his plan of salvation. And so what we see is that, that Jochebed entrusted her son into the, the loving, sovereign care of her heavenly father. She didn't know what was going to result, but she knew that she could trust her faithful God who had revealed to her that this child was special and unique. Entrusting our children to God's sovereign care is a declaration of trust and dependence in the one who gave us the children to raise. We can't control, I don't know, how many in, you, in here like to control things? It's okay. I, I do. I like to control things. That's, it's okay. It's all right. You're, you're not sinning uh, by saying you like to control, okay? I like to control things. The reality is we can't control everything. Our children need to see us relying on God always. We must realize that God sees what we don't see. God saw that one day Moses, when he was 80 years old, he was going to be the one tasked with the responsibility of going back to Pharaoh, going back to Egypt, and bringing his people out of bondage. Jochebed didn't see 80 years ahead. God saw. So what did Jochebed do? She just trusted in the faithful, sovereign care of a God who created her, created her son, and knew that she could trust him. God can do more and I want you to hear this. God can do more with and for our children when we entrust them to his care than we will ever be able to do in our own power and our own strength. When we release our children to the sovereign care of God, folks, I'm here to tell you that God can do more than we will ever be able to do in our own power and in our own strength. Does that mean our children won't mess up? Absolutely not. Does that mean our children won't wander? Can't promise that. But when we entrust our children to the sovereign care, the faithful care of a heavenly father, I can promise you he is going to be working in them in ways that we cannot in our own power, in our own strength. Finally, number four, we must learn to embrace every opportunity to, to point our children to Christ. Exodus 2, baby's sister approached the princess. Should I go and find one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? She asked, yes, do. The princess replied, so the girl went and called the baby's mother. Take this baby and nurse him for me. And this is very interesting. Um, and she said, and she told the baby's mother, I will pay you for your help. 
So the woman took her baby home and nursed him. Jochebed was given the privilege to nurse Moses fully. And what's very unique, I find, in this scripture, she was actually paid. (laughs) She was paid to do the very task that she was created to do in the first place. I mean, that's a pretty good gig, I think, for, for Jochebed, because she entrusted her son to the sovereign care of God. Miriam watches the basket in the Nile. She, she guards it, and when she sees that the baby is being drawn out of the water, she says, do you want me to go find somebody to nurse this child for you? And she said, yes. And not only does she get to nurse the child, she gets paid for doing so. Uh, this, is, this is what I really want you to capture this morning, and then we'll be done. Yvonne, if you want to come. Um, to me, this is probably the most significant aspect Um, that we see with Jochebed and we see with Moses. Moses is only a few months old. Remember, at three months old, she placed Moses in the basket. Put him in the basket, put the basket in the Nile River, and it began to go downstream. She only had three months with this child, and she had to release this child to the sovereign care of God. Then when the child was drawn out of the basket, out of the water, the daughter of Pharaoh said, I want you to go find somebody to nurse this child. And so she went back and she got Jochebed, the mother of Moses. And now Jochebed has this incredible opportunity, this incredible privilege. Yes, she wasn't gonna be able to be the mother of this child, to raise this child for several years. Moses would grow up in Egypt as the, as the uh, really the son of, of Pharaoh's daughter. So he would grow up in, in the king's court. But while he is there, while he is spending time with Jochebed, she has him for however long it takes for him to be fully weaned. And scripture doesn't say, um, and I'm not one to, to add to Scripture by any means, but I am pretty certain, and I could probably say based on the character and the integrity of Jochebed, every single moment that she had, with her son Moses. Every time that she had a chance to nurse him and hold him and rock him as a four-month-old, five-month-old, until he was fully weaned, I am certainly confident that Jochebed was taking every opportunity she had, knowing that the time wasn't going to last forever. She maybe only had a year. She might have only had a few months with Moses, but she was going to make certain that those moments count. And so what did she do? I'm certain that in those moments as she rocked Moses to sleep, as she nursed him, that she, uh, I am certain that she spent time praying over Moses, probably singing to Moses. There's songs that will come up later in scripture, and, and I'm certain some of those songs were probably sung over her son. She took every opportunity to pray over him, to sing over him, to bless him. Those were formative years that she got to lay a very strong foundation and point Moses in the right direction. So here's what we need to answer, two questions. As a parent, am I taking every opportunity given me to point my child to Christ? Only parents can answer that question. And number two, as a faithful member or follower of Christ or a participant of this church, am I taking every opportunity given me to point the children that I interact with on Sundays to Christ? Let's not wait until our children are older, have better comprehension, or we have more time as a church or as parents to point them to Christ. We must embrace the time now.
Jochebed was an unassuming mother in the background, but her ability to discern God's heart and her God-honoring demeanor paved the way for the salvation of God's people. We have to ask ourselves the question, how am I pointing our children to Christ? Would you stand with me this morning? This was a little bit of a different different message I diverted from the series that we are presently on. But I do want you to hear this word this morning. This message is not just for parents, not just for the ability. We have a role, we have a task. And I pray and hope. I love it. I love it when the kids are in here. I love the energy. I love the joy. I love the passion that our children have. And I think it's a great opportunity for them to see what it looks like for people to follow Christ, to worship Christ, to honor Him. So uh, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed this morning, I'm not going to have you come to the front or do anything special this morning. But I just want to pose that question again. We're going to close with this song, uh, The Blessing. And... um, as we're closing in this song and as we're singing and as we're worshiping, I want you to just, you can sing if you want, if you want to just stand there quietly, but just take a few minutes praying and asking God, God, how do you want me to respond to this message? If you're a parent, maybe there's some changes that need to be made in the home so that Christ is the center of your home. If you're a grandparent, maybe there's some changes that you need to make as your grandchildren come over and as you point them to Christ. If if you're here today and your your children are older and your children, they have grandchildren, they've moved away or they're not near or they're not present. Every single time that you come here and worship with us on Sunday mornings, you have an opportunity to point the children that are here to Christ. And so we're going to sing this song in closing. And I just want you to take a couple of minutes and just ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me to respond? What changes do I need to make? How can I make certain that Christ is at the center of my home? Let's worship.